When it comes to the television shows that we all love to watch, forensics, science, crime scene shows, they're actually more popular than you might even imagine. As a matter of fact, according to the Internet Movie Database, there are currently 97 forensics, science, crime scene shows, which include both fiction-based dramas and non-fiction documentaries. And seeing how we're all obviously intrigued by the art of forensic science, well, I want to spend our time tonight engaging in a bit of a forensic study of our Savior Jesus' death. Now, in order to understand why this sort of study is so important, uh, I should take a moment to point out that it's Good Friday, and you're like, no doy. And, but listen, what that means is this, that this is the day we commemorate the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. What you might not know is that there are those who insist that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Yeah, there are those who don't, don't really believe in this. And, and there's different ideas about, about why that is. Some actually believe that Jesus was actually replaced by his twin brother or that it was Judas that died on the cross and God the Father just made him look like Jesus. There's a, there's a bunch of different ideas about uh, how that all worked out. Some scholars actually te- uh, teach what's called the swoon theory, which is based on the belief that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was hung on the cross, but he didn't die on the cross. They believe that it was during his crucifixion when he swooned. Or in other words, they believe that he just passed out from the pain and was, you know, thought of as being dead, but, but he really wasn't. And after being taken down from the cross, they, they placed him in the tomb and it was in the tomb where the cold air resuscitated him, you know, like, like cold air does. And, uh, and then he came out on Sunday, you know, the risen savior. Now, if that is the case, if that's how it really went down, well, his post-cross appearances wouldn't have been evidence of his resurrection from the dead. And, and listen, if Jesus didn't really rise up from the dead, then there's no reason for us to be here tonight worshiping him. If Jesus really didn't rise up from the dead, then we're all here wasting our time tonight. Conversely, if the forensic evidence proves that Jesus really did die upon the cross, well, then the case for the resurrection of our Redeemer must be taken seriously. With this as the focus, we're going to spend our time tonight considering the eyewitness accounts of Christ's crucifixion. Well, as we apply the principles of forensic science to these historic accounts, we're going to soon see that Jesus did, in fact, die upon that cross. And with this as the focus, I want to begin uh, by examining the crime scene that John described here in his gospel account. And I want to consider, uh, I want to begin by considering the scourging that first took place at the command of a Roman ruler named Pilate. It's actually here in John chapter 18. We find Pilate telling the religious rulers of Israel, he says, you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Now here in these verses, John tells us that Jesus was scourged prior to his crucifixion. 
And it'll help us to understand that this scourging was possibly the worst kind of flogging ever administered by any ancient court. And, and listen, this scourging, it wasn't designed to be fatal, and yet it was so brutal that it did oftentimes result in death. You see, the victim of a Roman scourging was bound to a post, stripped of their clothing, and then beaten with a whip that was made of strands that were then designed to lacerate the skin of the accused. And and, and listen, one church historian, his name is Eusebius, he recounts with vivid, horrible details of a, a, a scene that he saw of scourging. And here's how he describes it. He says, for they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, were exposed to view. Brutal. What a brutal way to be punished. And yet this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the day when he was crucified. Well, after being scourged with a Roman whip, Jesus was then nailed to a Roman cross. And with this in mind, if you would look with me again here at John chapter 19, I want to direct your attention to verse 14 where John goes on to write this. He says, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now here in these verses, John tells us that Jesus was crucified. And what this means is that the Roman soldiers would hammer iron spikes into the wrists of the, of the crucifixion victim. And then also between the radius bone of the, of the carpal bones, um, uh, actually between the, uh, they, they would nail between the radius bone and the carpal bones. And the nail would usually crush or sever the large median nerve resulting in partial paralysis as well as excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. The feet of the victim would also be fixed to the front of the cross by means of another iron spike, which was driven through the first or second intermetatarsal space, which is basically located in the center of the foot. And much like the median nerve in the wrists, this spike that went through the feet would end up causing damage uh, to to nerves and, and thereby resulting in excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both legs. And since these nail holes missed all of the major arteries, crucifixion by itself was relatively a bloodless procedure. It's also interesting to note that the victim of crucifixion would typically die from slow suffocation. They would slowly suffocate there on the cross. As a matter of fact, the awkward position of the person's body upon the cross would interfere uh, with their ability to exhale. The weight of the body would pull down on the outstretched arms and the shoulders. And, and in this state, you know, inhalation, well, it was easy, uh, but exhalation was very difficult. And as a result, the victim of crucifixion would oftentimes end up dying just from the inability to breathe. 
in the event that the crucified person continued to hang in there, so to speak, uh, the Roman soldiers would eventually break the legs of the victim in order to hasten death by asphyxiation. John confirms this by informing us that the soldiers didn't need to break the, uh, the legs of Jesus because they discovered that he was already dead. And with this in mind, I want to look back here at John chapter 19. Uh, We'll pick up at verse 29, where John tells us that a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. And here in these verses, John tells us that by the time the soldiers came to break the legs of the Lord Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And in order to prove that he was dead, you know, one soldier took his spear and pierced the side of the Lord Jesus. Now, it was customary for one of the Roman guards to pierce the body with a sword or a lance. And according to tradition, this would have been a spear wound to the heart right through the right side of the chest. And John also tells us that the spear wound resulted in blood and water pouring out immediately. And what you might not know is that there's a sac surrounding the heart which contains a watery fluid. And therefore, when John mentions here blood and water pouring out, he's actually presenting us with conclusive evidence that the heart was literally pierced through. And I don't know if you realize this, but uh, you, you know most people don't survive uh, the, the heart being pierced. That, that's not something that you recover from. I don't care how cold the tomb is. You're not recovering from that wound. As we examine the forensic information that John presented here in this gospel account, it's easy for us to see that Jesus was brutally beaten by a Roman guard. He was then crucified upon a Roman cross he was then determined to be, te- to be dead by a Roman soldier who went on to pierce his heart with a spear. And in light of all this evidence, you know, the, the, uh, there should be no doubt that Jesus died there on the cross. And yet I understand that the skeptic will be led to ask, is the source material trustworthy? I see the verses that, you, that you've read here. And, and if the source material is trustworthy, then it would make sense that he died, but can we trust the source material? Can we trust that John was actually a credible eyewitness as he claimed to be? Can we trust him when he tells us that his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that we may believe? Can we really trust him here? Well, this brings us to the second section of this study because listen, before we can rely fully upon this information that we find in John's gospel account, we must determine whether or not He is, in fact, a credible eyewitness. And as we begin to consider John's credibility, I should first point out that a person's credibility is typically based on two key questions. 
The first question is based on the individual's trustworthiness. Are, do they, have they shown themselves to be a person who can be trusted? And, and, and with that, we must ask, was John a trustworthy eyewitness who was attempting to accurately report the things uh, that he saw? Or was he actually just an unreliable source who had, been, who had proven himself to be untrustworthy time and time again? We also want to know, secondly, if, he, if his report is verifiable and confirmed by other sources? Or was he the sole witness who has an account that is untestable? Well, not only should we consider John's trustworthiness, but we should ask the, uh, this second question about his level of expertise and, and, and whether his you know, testimony can be confirmed. Uh, and, and we want to know if John had special knowledge about the events that he was reporting here. It, you know, we want to know whether uh, this was uh, experienced through direct teaching or, or through a personal experience. You see, if John is shown to be a trustworthy eyewitness who actually had special knowledge about the information that he's reporting, well, then it only stands to reason then that we can trust him as a credible source of information regarding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Well, in order to determine John's credibility, I should first point out that when we cross-examine John's testimony to the rest of the Bible writers there in the first century, uh, we quickly discover that Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, and Paul, they're all in agreement with John's gospel account. So, so we don't find contradictions within the, uh, the, the accounts written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as the epistles written by Peter and Paul. They're all in agreement on this. And as you probably guessed already, you know, the disciples who penned the New Testament, they always confirm John's trustworthiness, and, and they also present us with corroborating information. Uh, and yet the skeptic would then uh, go on to ask, well, sure, you know, uh, how can we trust that they all didn't just cook it up together? You know, sure, they all tell the same story, but, you know, how do we know uh, that they didn't just, you know, create this story around the campfire one night and decide that they're all going to tell the same lie together? You know, if that's a concern for you, I want to consider a few extra biblical sources. Uh, for example, we should consider the writings of a Jewish historian from the first century. His name was Flavius Josephus. And, and Flavius Josephus, as far as we know, never became a Christian. He was just a historian there uh, in the, in the uh, late first century. And here's what he wrote uh, in one of his books. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Uh, now, as we consider this quote from Josephus' Antiquities, we see here that this famous Jewish historian from the first century, he's actually telling us about this historical man named Jesus. And Jesus had been condemned to die on the cross uh, according to the order of a Roman ruler named Pilate. And, and right there we see complete corroboration between Josephus and the, the accounts that we find in the New Testament. 
And Josephus even kind of weighs in on whether John is a trustworthy eyewitness as well, as he tells us that he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. But he, he says this, he says that uh, he was a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He's, John's one of the guys that he's talking about there. That, that John received the truth with pleasure and so Josephus is effectively weighing in on whether John is a reliable source or not. Well, from this, we can see that the, the, the apostle John actually provides in his biblical, biblical account a historical record that actually uh, lines up with this first century historian named Josephus. And listen, not only does Josephus mention Jesus in his historical record, but the Jewish work known as the Talmud also makes reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I want to consider the Talmudic passage known as Sanhedrin 43a. This passage states this, and I quote it, On Passover Eve, they hanged Jesus of Nazareth. He practiced sorcery, incited and led Israel astray. Was Jesus of Nazareth deserving of a search for an argument in his favor? He was an enticer, and the Torah says, You shall not spare, nor shall you conceal him. Now, here in this Jewish work of antiquity, we learn that there was this man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who, according to this passage, was hanged, or in other words, he was crucified. And for what reason? For the crime of sorcery and heresy. Now, you might be interested to know that you know, the disciples of Christ actually confirm the fact that the Jews were in fact making this accusation against Christ Jesus, that he was committing acts of sorcery. As a matter of fact, it's in Mark chapter 3, it's verse 22, where Mark tells us that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them in, a, in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Now from this, we see that Mark was completely transparent about the fact that the religious leaders of Israel were accusing Jesus of working mighty miracles through sorcery or by the power of Satan. And, and as we compare both accounts here, we can see that the New Testament is once again confirmed by an extra-biblical source. Not only that, but the Bible and the Talmud both confirm the fact that Jesus was not only an actual person who existed in the first century, but that he was also a person who was performing miracles with supernatural power. Why would they accuse him? Why would the religious leaders of Israel accuse him in the Talmud of, of engaging in sorcery unless he was doing something that was just beyond the natural? They're clearly trying to explain the miracles that they saw him performing. And they did it by saying, it's sorcery. Or as we see in the book of Mark, it's Beelzebub. Or in Texas, Beelzebubba, depending on. I think it's safe to conclude that John must be a trustworthy eyewitness whose testimony was supported by the friends as well as the foes of Jesus Christ. And not only was he a trustworthy witness, but I believe that we can also prove that he was an expert eyewitness. To prove my point, let's look again here at John chapter 19. We'll pick up at verse 25 where John writes, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, 
When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now here in these verses, we find John referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There at the cross, Jesus actually asked John to care for his mother, Mary. And what this means then is that John was actually there at the cross at the time when Jesus died. All the other male disciples had fled. They had run. They had you know, found a place, place to hide because they didn't want to be arrested like Jesus had been arrested. But John was right there at the cross when Jesus died. He witnessed the death of Jesus Christ. He didn't hear about the death of Jesus from secondhand information. And though he wasn't specially trained in criminal forensics, John was an expert witness in the fact that he had spent three years learning from the Lord Jesus Christ about the way that he would die according to the scriptures. You know, during the time when John walked with the Lord Jesus, the Lord taught all of the disciples about the way in which he would be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes. And Jesus told them that they would condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, mock and scourge and crucify him. And based on this, we see then that John received special instruction from Jesus about our Savior's crucifixion. That, that the Lord Jesus had literally told him that he would die there on the cross. Not only that, but the Lord also promised to send the Holy Spirit after his resurrection, who would then bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus taught them. So John, in creating his account, wasn't simply just working from memory. He wasn't relying on his human memory to try to bring up the, the things that he had heard along the way. No, the Holy Spirit was there to help John and the rest of the gospel writers to create their accounts with divine inspiration. And, and so we see then that John was in fact an expert eyewitness who received special help from the Holy Spirit to set the record straight regarding the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. This now brings us to the third and final section of this study because you know now that we've determined how Jesus died and now that we've determined the credibility of the eyewitness named John, I want to wrap up our investigation this evening by determining who's guilty of killing Jesus. Well, with this as the focus, we should take another look at the suspect list here, which is found uh, here in John chapter 19. Let's back up and look at verse 14, because here John writes, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he, that is Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Now, here in these verses, John presents us uh, with a list of suspects, beginning with the Roman governor named Pilate. Pilate, this Roman governor, delivered Jesus to be crucified. And, and so, you know, we can lay a lot of the blame at his feet for making this judicial decision. And yet, I don't think that we can lay all the blame at his feet. Pilate didn't go searching for Jesus to try to crucify him. He actually tried to get out of it. He, he wanted really nothing to do with it. He tried to release Jesus, 
by offering up Barabbas, a guy that nobody wanted released. So, so Pilate tried to get out, get out of it, but at the end of the day, I mean, he did call the final order, sentencing, sentencing our Savior to the cross. At the same time, we have to remember that Pilate didn't nail the nails. No, the soldiers did that. The, the soldiers were the one who actually led Jesus away and crucified him, and, and yet, you know, while it's true that they're also on the suspect list here, they're just following the orders, right? They're just following the orders of Pilate, who himself had given in to the pressure of the Jew- Jewish leaders there, who were going to settle for nothing less than, than the Lord's crucifixion. And uh, with that, we can see that the religious leaders of Israel are also on the suspect list. They were the ones who were ultimately calling for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Without debate, we already have a long list of suspects, and I would argue that this suspect list is even longer than this. As a matter of fact, I want to take a moment to remind you of something that the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. There John tells us that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, to be clear about this, the word propitiation, it's not a word we commonly use. John was basically telling us that Jesus presented himself as a substitutionary sacrifice or a satisfying sacrifice, which could atone for the sins of the world. More simply put, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that God could remain just while also justifying those who trust in Jesus Christ. And now those who trust in the cross of Christ can escape the righteous wrath of God because the Father already poured out his wrath there on the cross when he punished Jesus for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, or in other words, in a a Hollywood sense, he became our stuntman, if you will. He, He accomplished the hard work for us. He received the spanking, if you will. The spanking that we deserve. Jesus took it there on the cross. So that justice could be accomplished. And yet those who trust in him could also be forgiven. Now, if if Jesus was crucified for sinners, well, then every sinner is on the suspect list. Every single sinner is on the suspect list because it's our sins that ultimately put Jesus on the cross. Please understand that Jesus had to die on the cross in order to provide salvation for sinners. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no removal of sins. Without the shedding of his blood, God the Father is not satisfied. Justice has not been served until we receive our own punishment. Knowing that we would be eternally lost without the cross, God the Father sent his only begotten son who knew no sin to bear our sins for us so that our sins could then be covered with the righteousness of God which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. What this means then is that every sinner is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And since we're all sinners, then we're all just as guilty as the jealous Jews and the unrighteous Romans 
who all had a part in the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. Now, as we consider how all of our names are rightly found on that list of criminal suspects, I want to remind you of something that Jesus prayed for those who were crucified on either side of him. And with this as the focus, I want to consider Luke's account. And it's here in Luke chapter 23, where Luke tells us that when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Here in these verses, we find Jesus asking God the Father to forgive those who were guilty of crucifying him. And and at the same time, he was also receiving the punishment that those Roman soldiers actually deserved. He was receiving their punishment while simultaneously praying that they might be forgiven. Please understand that God is a holy being who can't just overlook sin. He can't allow a single sin to go unpunished. If God the Father allows one sin to go unpunished, then he becomes unjust. And since God is an actual being who can't be anything different from what he actually is, then he can never be unjust. He can never just look the other way. He can never just let you know, one sin through into heaven. Never going to happen. He must punish every single sin that's ever been committed. That being the case, Jesus was not only praying for the forgiveness of those who were hands-on in the crucifixion, but he was also making this forgiveness possible by receiving the just punishment that, it, that, that uh, those people deserved. And remember, according to John, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, we all now have the same opportunity to benefit from the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, the, the, the choice is still ours to make. To explain what I mean, I, I want to look again here at Luke chapter 23. It's here where Luke tells us that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here in these verses, Luke tells us about the two thieves who ended up being crucified on either side of Jesus. And while neither of these men personally called for his death, and neither of them personally hammered a nail into the wrists and the feet of Jesus, we do know for certain that these men were indeed sinners who deserved the condemnation of the law. And yet Jesus was dying for them as well. Much like us, those criminals on the cross were indirectly guilty of Jesus' death because they were sinners. But we also know that both of these men present us with 
the two options that are currently available to every single person. Option number one, well, we can follow the example of the first thief who rejected the free gift of forgiveness, which Jesus paid for with his blood there on the cross. Or we can go with option number two. We can follow the example of the second thief who happily received the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus made available through his death possible that you've been following in the footsteps of the thief who rejected the free gift of grace. And if so, I'm glad you're here tonight. And I also encourage you to take a page from the life of the second thief. Much like the second thief who placed his faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to trust in Jesus tonight. Trust in Jesus tonight so that you can receive the free gift of his forgiveness. Jesus paid for our sins there on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And those who trust in Jesus, well, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who reject the free gift of grace, well, you're going to have to pay for your own sins. These are the only two options. Either Jesus can pay for your sins or you can. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather not pay for my sins. Especially knowing that the Lord Jesus has already received the punishment that I deserve. When I realized this back in 1995, I quickly received by faith that free gift of grace and I encourage you to do the same. It's often been said that there's nothing good in life that's free. And yet I want to tell you that the one who created life is also the one who freely offers us the forgiveness by which we are set free from the shame and the stain of our sins. And while it's true that the free gift of God's grace is extended to every sinner, no matter our sins, it's also true that this free gift of grace by which we're forgiven must be received. It's a gift that must be received by faith. In Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, I encourage you in closing. If you've never before, then let tonight be the night you trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. And in this way, you'll be set free from all condemnation because Christ Jesus already received the condemnation that we deserve there on the cross. Trust in Jesus Christ tonight. And receive by faith that free gift of grace which sets us free from the stain of our sin. With that, we're going to turn our attention to the communion table and I'll explain a little bit more about how this ties in together. But listen, it was on the night of his arrest when Jesus served up the Passover supper, a Seder meal. And now we recognize that this was all a picture of the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And with that, let's continue in an attitude of worship to consider how the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from the stain of our sin. Lord Jesus, we 